You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead, CEO and Portfolio Manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we're readers and we believe in the power of books to help shape informed investors. In this podcast, we speak to great authors about their writing. The late, great Charlie Munger prescribed using multiple mental models in analysis. We analyze their work through the lens of business, markets, and people. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the podcast. Hosting this along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer, Bill Smead. I usually refer to him as dad. Dad, thanks for joining me. Great to be here and really excited to visit with George. So normally, uh, we visit with podcast guests from our small studio in our office, and it's, it's, it's dinky. Um, but this is a special discussion. We are coming live from the 2024 Smead Investor Oasis. We have the blessing uh, of looking out at, uh, over a large studio audience today. Um, this means that Bill and I would like to also give a very proud welcome to all the investors joining us th- this year at the Oasis. Let's get a huge round of applause for everybody. All right, this will, be, this will be quite a fun. We're gonna talk, as we always do with today's guest, uh, about the order of the world and the philosophy of how we all subdue the earth and have dominion, I would say. Um, George Gilder is joining us to talk about his latest book, Life After Capitalism. Um, to give you a little background on George, George has written numerous other books that include Life After Google, Life After Television, Microcosm, and his 1981 classic, Wealth and Poverty. George has followers all across the technology world, including Peter Thiel, Eric Schmidt, Ray Kurzweil. Um, he also founded the Discovery with Bruce Chapman in, uh, Discovery Institute with Bruce Chapman in 1990, of which I'm blessed to be on the board and yeah. um, uh, very fun. Thank you. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention uh, to our audience that if you have not heard George speak publicly, he is one of a kind, and I, that's like a full stop. Um, you were in for a real treat. George, it's great to have you here in Phoenix for the 2024 Smeet Investor Oasis. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted. Well, let's get started. First of all, what, what caused you and motivated you to write the book, Life After Google, and what moved you to write Life After Capitalism? Well, Life After Google expresses my vision that uh, this world of gigantic, increasingly centralized data centers that... Uh, with refrigeration towers that dominate their architecture and models of AI that uh, entail 175 billion parameters for just chat GPT. All this is a climactic phase of the Silicon era Mm -hmm. and that we're uh, moving into a new era where intelligence will continue as it always is to be distributed as widely as human minds are distributed. Life after capitalism just expresses this crazy world we're in at the moment where uh, the governments declare emergencies and then assume new powers 
and as if socialism can suddenly be made into a workable system by declaring an emergency. Well, by the way, we didn't pay George to say that. I just yeah. want to let everybody know here. He, he's not a paid shill. Uh, um, you say early in the book on the subject of humans, we are the bane of the earth. I, explain. We're the plague on the planet. Aren't <laughs> we looking at us here? <laughs> Look what we've done to Phoenix. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, it'll be like this for 45 minutes. We're going to have quite a bit of fun, everybody. Uh, You say that computer chips, the computer chip business has nothing to do with the material that compose it um, or the money that we use to make it. Uh, Quote, it has everything to do with knowledge, end quote. Explain Uh, this to the audience. Well, uh, I'm, I'm introducing the information theory of economics. Mm-hmm. I don't think economics is chiefly an incentive system that arrives at uh, its goals through mobilizing greed. I believe economics is essentially an information system. And uh, uh, Claude Shannon, who was really the, f- in some ways, the founder of our information age, defined information as surprisal, as unexpected bits. And uh, as um, Albert Hirschman of Princeton put it, creativity is the key to all economic growth and progress. Mm. And creativity always comes as a surprise to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't need it. And government planning would work. And we'll, we'll talk more about that because <laughs> obviously we all deal in a stock market where the future is unknown. So we'll yep. come back to that because I think yep. it's a really important principle. Love, love that concept. Um, just brought up. So George, uh, I mean, there's just uh, I, I feel like uh, you, you, you like picking fights, so I want to get in some of the fights you pick in this book because it's fun. Um, you liken sustainability in the Western world to the principle of common prosperity in China. H- how are those the same? You kind of well, touched on it with the government, but, I, I, but can you explain that more? Analogous. Well, it just uh, it assumes that we have we live in a world of limited resources and and. Uh, that somehow we can collectively tap and redistribute these resources. Uh, uh, Elon Musk has a good image. He, he says, we imagine the economy is kind of a horn of plenty and, uh, and everybody's fighting to uh, command different flows of wealth from this horn of plenty. But it, it's, a, it's, it's a magical uh, concept of economics and economic growth. Mm. You, you, you point out, George, there's one scarce resource. What is that? That's um, human minds. That's uh, the scarce resource is, is human minds. I've, in, the, in what has really been a great discovery f- for me in the last uh, four or five years, I've encountered Gail Pooley of... Um, He's at Brigham Young, actually, and uh, Brigham Young, Hawaii, and his collaborator, Marion Tupi from St. Andrews in England, wrote a book called Superabundance. Mm-hmm. And what they have really demonstrated is the bankruptcy of all the 
economic measuring systems that uh, agglomerate in Washington with these gigantic bureaucracies full of economists pouring over uh, consumer price indices, GDP deflators, and all these purchasing power parities, all these kind of um, measures of economic progress and utterly missing uh, the revolutionary massive increases of abundance around the world, uh, which uh, correspond to the growth of human populations. The bigger the population, the more resources there are. In other words, human minds create resources. We do not consume resources. Right. And we'll come back to that because that's a... I, We'll talk about the lottery tickets of humanity is how I think about that idea. Discuss the problem in measuring Nordhaus's 94 essay titled, Do Real Income and Real Wage Measure Capture Reality? The history of lighting suggests not. Well, this is uh, uh, Nordhaus, the Nobel laureate uh, professor from uh, Yale. Everybody gets your Nobel for your worst idea, you know. So uh, Nordhaus got his his Nobel for carbon taxes, but uh, but before that he made a genuine Nobel laureate worthy uh, discovery that uh, of time prices. In other words, this is a universal measure that applies to any economy at any moment in history in any place in the universe. Uh, and it measures value by the number of hours and minutes and days that uh, you have to spend to accumulate the money to purchase goods and services. And uh, this allows you to uh, compare different eras. And uh, Nordhaus did a massive study of the history of lighting, illuminating a room, how much did it cost in hours of human labor to illuminate a room? And he discovered that, that uh, over human history, this was uh, this technology of lighting had advanced thousands of times faster than uh, economists had estimated that, that uh, the, the, the history of lighting uh, was uh, absent from economic histories that focused on the dismal science of scarcity or dark satanic mills. And <laughs> while they wrote about dark satanic mills, a lighting revolution was underway and people could uh, uh, read on into the night and expand their days. And, and, and it was really a, a complete transformation of human life that was utterly missing from economic data. And today, uh, measures of GDP are really ridiculous. They assume all government spending uh, done by printing money or whatever is uh, worth what it costs. Uh, while, uh, <laughs> or is easy to pay. <laughs> while, uh, while private sector accomplishments are drastically undervalued, they have no estimate of the massive consumer surpluses that people like Nordhaus and 
Pooley and Tupi uh, dramatize in their book, Superabundance. We really live in an era of superabundance. Uh, yeah, we, we totally agree, George. So I, I feel like we're beating around the bush a little bit here. And I don't know, maybe it's because, um, you know, some people might be chagrined that we're not burning whale fat anymore to yeah. get our lighting versus, you know, just turning on a light switch and saving all of the whales out yeah, there. Yeah. But um, that's another subject for another day. Let's hit the nail on the head, though, okay? We're not talking about Thomas Malthus, okay? No. So why was Malthus so wrong? And is there any evidence? I mean, you're talking about superabundance and the, the data for time prices, which is wonderful mm. work. But is there any evidence that he or Paul Ehrlich of population bomb fame yeah. have ever been proven right? No, they, 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 I mean, that's the point of superabundance is, is that humans create resources. We don't consume them. That's the essence of it. Okay. And, uh, but... Uh, this is, uh, you know, Paul, uh, Carl Sagan mm -hmm. used to like to uh, give people a sense of the size of the universe, you sure. know, that, that, and how human beings were mere specks in this vastness that surrounds us. And he'd say that there are more stars in our universe than there are grains of sand and all the world's beaches. Well, a uh, uh, physicist at Stony Brook called Jennifer Cano, who I like, points out that there are more electrons in a single grain of sand than there are all the stars in the universe. <laughs> and, uh, and these electrons create a, a new quantum universe mm -hmm. that is been opened through the nanocosm, which I'm writing about, um, to uh, create all sorts of new opportunities. Essentially, uh, the Neanderthal in this cave, as Thomas Sowell wrote in 1971, in Knowledge and Decisions, had all the natural resources we have today. The difference between our age and the Stone Age is completely the growth of knowledge. Yeah. Now they want to create a new Stone Age. You know, they're uh, <laughs> Wired had a, there's a company called Climeworks yeah. that was a cover story in Wired magazine, a great breakthrough. They can convert CO2 in the atmosphere into stones for trillions of dollars. Uh, that sounds like a deal, right? <laughs> Isn't that a speed company? Uh, 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 George, you might pick a fight at some point here. We'll probably have a presidential official or, or you know, maybe someone that's got some subsidy. So let, let's pivot, though, because um, on top of that idea of Malthus and Paul Ehrlich, who I agree, I'm always blown away, George, where I run into these technology optimists where they think the world's their oyster and they can conquer the world. And then you ask them about you know, where we're going in the world, and they have this super dour view. Oh, we're going to ruin this earth. And it's like, wow, in your business, you seem pretty optimistic. But in your view on life, it's yeah. very negative. So um, one of the uh, outcomes of bad thinking, I'll call uh, it, or the lack of knowledge, is scarcity, right? Uh, bad uh, thinking or the lack of knowledge is scarcity. Price caps cause a scarcity of labor, as an example. Um, we've taught the West to not have children, Kids are polluters. You know, you're, you're, you're the bane of the earth. Your kids are going to be worse, as you can tell from me. I obviously was. Um, should we be shocked that we are starting to find a scarcity of productive and ready workers 
Um, should we complain about young people or repent from the lie that children are bad for wealth and thus society? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nihilism and it's really a dread, dreadful fruit of this materialist superstition that afflicts much of our philosophy, the idea that we're in a determinist material universe and we kind of represent some sort of random fluctuation. Uh, uh, I always like to quote C.S. Lewis's great essay, Transposition, mm -hmm. which uh, is, imagine that you are a 2D citizen of a flatland. Uh, you're... Uh, creeping across the surface of a landscape painting, a 2D landscape painting. Uh, could you believe in a 3D world of which this 2D painting is the merest shallow reflection? And uh, uh, if all you know is explicable in terms of this 2D vocabulary, you've measured all the, the effects of the light and the patterns of the oil, the, you know all the material details of this 2D painting, and you, yeah, people ask you, about, well, what about the 3D universe out there of which this painting is a mere reflection? And... Uh, the modern materialism says, I have no need for that hypothesis. <laughs> uh, I can explain everything in terms of these 2D relationships that I experience. And uh, this is a hierarchical universe, and uh, you can't reduce the higher levels to the lower levels. We'll, come, we'll come back a, to that. We'll yeah. come back because you got... Um, we'll touch on some of the, what I'll call the other dimensions that go unaddressed that I, that yeah. I think your book made me think of. This show is brought to you by Smee Capital Management. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. You know, we work hard putting together this show, but we work even harder for our investors at Smee Capital Management. At Smee, we believe in disciplined investing, which is why the Smee funds have a proven track record of long-term outperformance. If you're an investor who fears stock market failure and want to invest in wonderful companies to build wealth, we invite you to visit smecap.com. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please refer to the prospectus for important information about the investment company, including objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Read and consider it carefully before investing. Smeet funds distributed by UMB Distribution Services, LLC, not affiliated. George, you tug at our heartstring when you said this in the book, quote, under capitalism, capital migrates not to those who spend it best, but those who can expand it best. Right. That's why my wife and me are a really good team. <laughs> we have both sides covered. Uh, to expand wealth, to enrich many lives, depend on knowledge and learning, not on mere incentives, unquote. It's not the financial benefits that cause people to create, it's the seeking of truth. Explain what seems to be this paradoxical reality. Paradoxical in that, you know, it's the creation of an idea yeah. that drives people, but yet there's incentives that can also fuel. It's, yeah. It seems paradoxical. I, mean, I think incentives are, are universal. There are incentives under socialism. They might be perverse, but they're incentives to blandish <laughs> government officials and bureaucrats and make deals with the authorities and, and uh, take what you can get. Uh, 
uh, in, an, uh, in what's assumed to be a zero-sum world, mainly. Those are incentives. So incentives apply everywhere, and uh, everywhere greed is a distortion and uh, uh, a loss of uh, um, its information and creativity that always comes as a surprise to us that fuels all economic growth and progress. This part of your book, I, I got really going because you said something that seems so simple, and yet I think it's missed. So um, I, I'm, <laughs> I have to laugh when I say this. You call the Darwinian idea that survival of the fittest is tautological, okay? And, and when you said it, I was like, well, I, the other term I thought of was like, well, that's prima facie, right? <laughs> right? Survival of the fittest is just true on its face. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by this? Because yeah. we assume it's like some eternal truth, and it's a truth that's just self-fulfilling. There's no yeah. truth about it. Yeah, I mean, it, what survives is fittest, and uh, what is fittest survives. It's a self-referential circle that doesn't advance the argument very far. And uh, it, uh, you know, Darwin imagined that the cell, and he said various things like this, that the cell was an amorphous lump of protoplasm. That was what he assumed the cell in a human body was. And uh, what we discover today is each cell in a human body is a massively complex and almost ineffably uh, intricate device that we, we containing uh, all this information systems of DNA and and uh, programming systems of RNA and uh, the the whole and uh, energy system with ATP and uh, adenine triphosphate, you know, phosphate, all, all these incredibly uh, complex operations that that. Uh, did, did, Both did, Newton and Darwin, it, Newton thought that the atom was just an undifferentiated lump, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, Darwin thought the cell was an undifferentiated lump. Uh, instead, we have this fabulous universe in a single grain of sand. Yeah. I mean, this it's is... Intelligent design, whole, I think, is the what The whole world what, what, what is described. fabulously more complex and fabulously more resourceful than these materialist models uh, imagine. When what, you're, what you advocate to the book is... I love your C.S. Lewis quote because it, what you're advocating is a 3D model in a 2D view to most people. In other words, you're saying, hey, there's a third dimension. Okay, so I'm there, are, there are infinite dimensions. Well, I agree, I agree. But, yeah. but let's touch it because you get to another, um, we always talk about this. What is physically and economically true is also spiritually true, I would argue. Yeah. Okay, And that's part of what C.S. Lewis is getting yeah. out of that third yeah. dimension or fourth dimension. The, uh, you wrote in your book, the Gospel of John says that the be in the beginning was the word. Okay, yeah. um, You were a secular intellectual earlier in your life as you commented in the book, um, this idea of in the beginning was the word, isn't this the same as the entrepreneur? In the beginning was the word or what I'll call their idea, yeah, yeah, their unscripted, yeah. unknown idea. Yeah, the idea. Yeah, the, the, uh, the word is uh, manifested in all sorts of different words in our 
uh, vocabulary of ideation. You know, there, you know, uh, we got qubits now. We got bits and bytes. We got logos. We got uh, logic. We got, but it's all different manifestations of the word. And uh, and the substrate doesn't matter. You can uh, inscribe words and sand and gallium arsenide and, uh, you know, graphene. Let me tell you about <laughs> graphene. This is uh, a running theme. <laughs> and, uh, but, the, but, there's, but the material substrate does not determine yeah. the yeah. content. Conduit does not determine content. Mm. Uh, the content comes first. In the beginning was the word, and that represents great wisdom that is a practical agenda for investors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the understanding that uh, all information is ultimately surprise, Mm -hmm. and the surprises of human creativity and the image of their creator is is uh, the fundamental uh, expression of our predicament. George is kidding, by the way. We know what stocks are going to go up. It's a joke. Yeah. Um, Mind can generate and lend meaning to words, but words in themselves cannot generate mind or intelligence. What what does this say for generative AI? Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. That's a little Matthew McConaughey right I'll get to that later. You know... I've been I've been writing about AI for 50 years now. It's I not mean, new. I'm, it's not brand new. Well, it, it, I mean, AI, all the AI claims and expectations were expounded by McCarthy in the great Stanford conference in 1956, I believe. <laughs> and uh, and it, it they they thought it would take a couple years to, or maybe even it, ever, all the scientists went back home from that conf, conference with the mandate to fulfill this uh, uh, embodiment of the human mind and a machine uh, during the course of the summer. And, uh, and it's, it's not that the AI that systems that are currently being introduced are a new computer platform and they're very impressive and exciting. They're probably less dramatic than the PC revolution, but maybe, you know, in the course of time, they'll, they're going to outstrip the PC revolution to the extent that they really do distribute uh, computer power more widely as an instrument of human creativity. But but this idea that it is somehow apocalyptic or a threat or it's it's is it's just delusional and it's it's a delusion, however, that has a propagandistic purpose, which is to induce regulation. Sam Altman is uh, a is the great leader of OpenAI, which Microsoft bought, and it's it's. And did chat GP two, three and four and four turbo and all this and it's it's exciting, but he says he says we need to have government regulation and guidance. And this is this is a 
uh, an entrepreneur who has lost his way. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if you think, it, it's, just, it's, it's just really a bizarre uh, manifestation of the materialist superstition that they think they can end the world with a computer. It's just, it, it's, it's stupid. And, um, and, that, and uh, so a lot of people, a lot of uh, it's Silicon Valley now is seeking government regulation. That tells me it's the end of the line for Silicon Valley. <laughs> bring, bring in graphene and uh, this great new material that's utterly transformative, that's a thousand times more conductive than copper. Uh, Silicon Valley is approaching a heat crisis and all these gigantic data centers with their refrigerator towers. They're really giant refrigerators is what they are. And, uh, and, and uh, graphene is the most heat transmissive material ever discovered by far. It's the strongest material. It's the thinnest material. It's, the, it's, it's just, I've, I've got a new book coming on graphene, but Life After Capitalism has a chapter on yeah. graphene. Wait with Jim Tour and, and, and yeah. who's, who's done some wonderful you, you, work. You, you get into another spiritual truth, if you haven't picked up on all the spiritual truth that he's already thrown at you. How is confession learning? How is what? Confession, confession learning. How, how, when you confess, it, yeah, as, yeah, a, right. as, a, as a person learning, yeah, you know, yeah, what does that give you? Well, it just, it just means crucial to learning is falsifiability. I mean, if, if uh, anything that's guaranteed suppresses learning and information and surprise and, and the expansion of knowledge and, and economic growth guarantees... So you got to be open to failure. You got to be open to refutation. You got to be open to falsification, and that's critical to the learning process and all economic growth. That's why government guarantees destroy companies and destroy growth. If you got a, a company with a government guarantee, it's probably going to fail. So. I so you, you use this wonderful analogy in your book. Um, I find it very interesting that, you know, the wealth is bad, but you did use one of the most expensive cars in the world to explain this analogy, which I, I found intriguing. Um, you explain the analogy of the Bugatti Veyron, okay? And you, you point out, and, and I, I was thinking, like, it's kind of like us. Someone could say, I'm just a mass of cells. Like, Malthus no. might say, Cole's just a mass of cells, you know, mass of, mass of, of cells, and maybe not a very good mass to boot. Um, but I say that because... It's my design. That's what gives me value, yeah, right? Uh, and hence, you know, there's an oracle outside of me that yeah. somehow designed me. In the case of the Bugatti, um, you, you mentioned if you took that Bugatti and you ran it into a wall, it would go from like a $2.6 million car to something worth far less. Yeah. It's not the components that comprise it. It's what has been designed. Yeah, the, the value of the Bugatti is entirely in the design. You crash it against... And uh, all the material atoms and molecules remain, uh, but uh, they uh, completely lose their value. The value wasn't in the material, it was in the knowledge embodied in the Bugatti. Yeah. George, you wrote, quote, paradoxically, just as all human experience teaches us that there is a path, it teaches us the next step is always unknown. It is always concealed by the opaque curtain of time 
The next step is always an experiment to be validated or falsified, unquote. As you, as you say, knowledge is surprised because the future is known, unknown. Why then do thinkers and investors treat a shared belief in a known future as knowledge? By the way, at the heart and soul of almost everything we do yeah, yeah. here. Well, the, the, general, the, the essence of it is it takes... Surprise is measured by Shannon as entropy, as information entropy, as mm. unexpected bits, surprisal. Um, but in order to transmit surprising ideas, you need a low entropy carrier. That is, you need predictable structure of laws and, and expectations and, and uh, beliefs and moral codes and family uh, values and all these things provide a low entropy carrier for high entropy uh, creations. And, and uh, you need both. You need the low entropy carrier, the predictable channel, and you need the, the, to accommodate the surprises of human creativity. But if you begin manipulating the carrier, government intervening everywhere and changing everything and, and imposing woke uh, nonsense and you know, just generally uh, undermining the predictable carrier, you can thwart the unexpected boons of creativity. They've become swamped by noise in, uh, in a information system. Well, in other words, uh, you know, not everyone can be high entropy either necessarily yeah, no. because there's got to be a low entropy system that it goes through. Yeah, yeah. You wrote that, uh, quote, Chinese-backed venture funds have failed to spur a mainland microchip industry strong enough to compete with Taiwan's global mastery, unquote. Yeah, you, you call their way of doing this, quote, this randomness operating on large numbers, unquote, and shows why they're captive to the materialist uh, superstition. Couldn't this same criticism scald the passive investor in the U.S.? In other words, it's the law of large numbers. You just yeah, go passively yeah. do whatever you want. Right, yeah. and it, and it, but it's not working for the Chinese in venture capital. How can that work for everybody? Is that surprise? Yeah. Well, well I mean, it, you, it's... There's an illusion that uh, the surprises of human creativity can be simulated by a random number generator. I mean, this is in AI systems uh, gain their surprisal, gain their ability to simulate human intelligence through injecting levels of randomness. Uh, into the system. And, you know, they have a temperature. You know, one is a complete, uh, reliable reproduction of the most probable outcomes from the AI system. And zero, I might have this opposite, but zero may be uh, the most random outcomes. Yeah. And it turns out the people prefer outcomes that include a certain amount of randomness, which means uh, that uh, the outcomes are error prone. And this is, a, this is a fundamental contradiction 
in the AI scheme. It assumes that randomness is the same as human creativity, but uh, you can't simulate human creativity by a random number generator. So, so let's touch on that human creativity because you tell, I mean, I, again, this is a, a wonderful idea. Um, you talk about McLean's uh, creation of the cargo container, yeah, right? Yeah. So we look out at these intermodal containers, yeah. you know, on ships, on trains, and we take that for granted, but even even that was human creativity. Oh, yeah. Explain how that revolutionized global trade and what it was and, prior. Yeah, well, this is this was crucial. Uh, you know, before you couldn't have global trade in the intricate and fragile and and diverse components of a smartphone, what I've been calling a teleputer since I predicted way back in uh, <laughs> life after capitalism. But I mean, life after uh, something or other, but <laughs> life, life after television, I've forgotten about television, yeah. although Apple wants me to sign up for Apple TV every time I open my iPhone. iPhone. <laughs> I don't know what they... Along with 40,000 other if I things that Apple wants you to do. iPhone in order to return to the TV age. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what they've got on their minds. But anyway, cargo yeah. container is a... A low entropy carrier for the world economy. Every everything can be put into uniform. It digitizes trade uh, as bits and bytes allow information to be transmitted readily through all the systems of uh, information age. Uh, the containerization of trade. Uh, and is uh, like the bits and bytes of international commerce. Yeah, the, the, the it's a low entropy carrier, packetized yeah. uh, uh, transmission of goods and services around the globe. As a ship pilot, my dad made a lot of money from those containers. Uh, George, why do you think healthcare and education don't follow the time price path of all the other goods we produce? Because they're dominated by government. And these seem to and not they're governed be- by authority rather than by creativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it sounds like that's done. Yeah. Um, Bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> Bureauc- I rarely catch George on short words, but that was that was that was full stop there. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who's listening to this show. You know, we recently hit the top ten in investing podcasts on Apple Podcasts, and even number one in the business category in several countries. As you may know, this show is brought to you by Smee Capital Management. Smead understands how frustrating and illogical the stock market can be. If you are searching for funds with a proven track record, give the Smead funds a look. Or better yet, reach out at SmeadCap.com. And don't forget to mention you're a fan of the podcast. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please refer to the prospectus for important information about the investment company, including objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Read and consider it carefully before investing. Smead funds distributed by UMB Distribution Services, LLC, not affiliated. You, you quote one of my dad's favorite lines. I don't know if you chuckled when you read this, this part of the book. Um, every year, my dad will go sit down around Thanksgiving, watch It's a Wonderful Life, and you sure enough yeah. quote his like, favorite line of the movie where he explains to them how a bank runs and that the money isn't sitting in the safe. It's yeah, in his yeah, property, yeah. in his property. Um, uh, so I, we love that scene. The best investments to fund 
are the ones that create their own capital immediately. That's yeah. the ideal world. To your point, the knowledge is so great and it's so profitable to society that it starts feeding out cash yeah. and grows itself. Uh -huh. Now, not all investments are like that though. As we uh -huh. know, some of these investments require, I mean, yeah. I think of like the internet age, it took billions of dollars of infrastructure to be built yeah. to, in creating what I'll call a low entropy carrier ultimately yeah. Yeah. to produce all the information we share yeah. today on the internet and our phones you know, globally. So how do you look at how do you look at uh, the the illiquidity gap is what I think about it yeah. right that that where banks have to provide long term investment okay um, and yet they're doing that to effectively arbitrage the price of money where someone's eating capital day one versus the business that creates yeah. capital day one. Yeah. Well, I think the fundamental law of investment is you can only keep what you give away. This is originally the Midas paradox. Mm. You know, King Midas turned everything to gold and died of starvation. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you can only keep what you give away. If you try to hoard and keep stuff, uh, you uh, undermine the creative process of altruistic enterprise that ultimately uh, produces all growth and progress. You say that, quote, fiat currency is obviously oracular, unquote. Or oracular. 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 Yeah. Because it's based on faith. You go on to point out that God's creation of time is better. We find it funny to believe that inflation is bagged with the government, is loaded with low entropy investment opportunities and massive debts to begin with. We believe there's only way out, like all governments for the last 100 years, is to inflate. Would you agree? Um, I, th I think the key point is to understand what money is. M money is uh, what remains scarce when everything else grows abundant. We live in a world of superabundance. And uh, money is ultimately time. It's tokenized time. It's the way the scarcity of time is uh, incorporated in uh, the management of abundance and creativity. And t time is the scarce resource, and, uh, and money is essentially time. Wealth is knowledge, growth is learning, information is surprise, and money is time, and uh, uh, tokenized time. And so it's a real thing. And uh, it was simulated by gold, which uh, over the millennia, it, because as uh, we've mined ever deeper for more gold, it neutral, neutralized the effect of technological advance. Mm. Uh, the, you got the miner with a sieve in the gold rush in California could, or the guy with a sieve on a river could uh, mine gold as fast as a gigantic factory of um, mining complex in South Africa. You, you know, that it, it's uh, so gold neutralized time. And uh, that's why gold was the, and has been the most in, intrinsic money. I, I believe that the, the crypto uh, revolution is going to increase 
is going to produce a new global money and retrieves the economy for capitalists from these uh, now nationalized banks. I mean, uh, the, uh, the politicians have used uh, nationalization of banks and, uh, and uh, the ability to just print money, essentially, to uh, circumvent all political processes and democratic controls and constitutional restrictions. They just print more money and issue a mandate and a subsidy, and they think they've guaranteed the future. Which and what they do is destroy the future. Guarantee by that failure. Well, well, yeah, guarantee and, failure. And to, and to prove your point, George, about the money is time. I always, I was. I think the easiest way to think about this is, um, how do you live longer here on Earth? Well, the number one statistic is how much money do you have? Because with money, you have better health care. So it's interesting to see that there's a direct correlation mm-hmm. between the amount of money you have and how long you're able to sustain mm-hmm. yourself on Earth. It is the closest thing to capturing time, or in the information theory, it would be the accrued knowledge you provided to society yeah. that saved them time, yeah. inversely. Well, well, I think that's right, except uh, you know, our lifespans across the developed world are now, for the first time, longevity is diminishing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is kind of an alarming development, yeah. and it's, I think it's a result of uh, the socialization of healthcare. Healthcare is no longer entrepreneurial. It's entirely government uh, mandated and with operation warp speeds and similar ideas where essentially government mandates and subsidizes the future and thus produces uh, uh, reduced longevity despite the miraculous expansion of knowledge uh, which renders biotech and uh, one of the great frontiers of opportunity in the world economy. Uh, it's amazing how uh, the socialization of healthcare, how quickly it's brought to a screeching halt uh, the growth and longevity that has been the great triumph of the of human endeavor in the last uh, several hundred years. So I, I don't. I want to get to the most important thing that I think blockchain will bring to us in society. So, Bill, you want to tee up our... As a baby boomer, I hate passwords. <laughs> Do you really believe the blockchain's tokenization process will get me away forever having to remember any of my passwords in Web 3.0? Well, yeah, I mean... I, the password is not is is really something to stick on you, the user of the technology, the responsibility for security that the producer of the technology actually should incur, but is allowed to avoid under uh, monopoly rules. You know, FTC think keeps in business these. Uh, uh, security scams like Norton and all these uh, all these uh, security mumbo jumbo companies that uh, are are really uh, and then uh, collecting all your passwords and usernames and and uh, demanding them as you proceed through the program. I mean, it's a complete clutter of nonsense 
<laughs> where they stick on the customer the blame for the incredibly gross security fiasco of uh, millions and millions of usernames and uh, and passwords being stolen every month. You know, every you know, they're constant big catastrophes. Well, of, you're, you're, it's, you're, it's, <laughs> it's, and still they blame you for uh, uh, and slow you down every day yeah. Yeah. Uh, with this password nonsense. It's uh, so I'm the only non jaded person on the stage right now. I think I think um, bio, <laughs> I think bio, <laughs> bio ID and is is uh, is reasonable. You know, they so you can. Proves that you're you. That's reasonable. Fingerprint. But to, but to make you memorize hundreds of passwords, George. There's a lot we didn't get to. Admittedly, we we didn't. Um, it's a great book. It's a wonderful book. Uh, we didn't get to graphene. Which, by the way, George, if you want to learn about a wonderful technology that, again, it's purely based on knowledge. Yep. And and just so we're all on the same page, it's carbon based. That really dangerous. The scary, scary thing. We didn't get to page 76 where he literally uses the best scientists to blow up the whole global warming climate change oh, wow. debacle. Oh, wow. uh, so there's, there's a lot we didn't get to. Um, but I, w- I wanted to ask you, George, um, you know, I, and I think the question I want to I, I want to finish on is I don't I don't think I did it early in my notes. But, um, you know, we 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 start out with this like very dark view of the world. And I think somewhere in my notes, um uh, here, I, 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 you know, you, you point out how bleak the future is in a quote unquote sustainable world. Mm. Okay. And you kind of lay out the worst case scenario. And I think what you, the reason why you did that early in the book is because we hear about that all the time, yeah. how bleak it is. So I guess, you know, can you give us the opposite case? In well, other words, what, you know, can you give us kind of a blue sky picture of what this world looks like compared to what we hear more regularly? No, well, it's, a, it's I wrote the introduction to superabundance, and uh, this book, Life After Capitalism, summarizes superabundance and and has a couple chapters written by uh, Gail Pooley, who is the master of all the data that proves that all these GDP numbers and CPIs and GDP deflators and purchasing are all just um, futile and misleading. So, and that interesting, but they're, they're contrary things. This is, it may not be that we have any inflation. This whole idea of inflation as the natural condition of economies is a function of money debauchery. Yeah. Yeah. But measured by time, which is the real measure of value, we've had no inflation. We had incredible increases. All the inflation is in government. Everything else is massively uh, cheaper. According to the learning curve, uh, and uh, I just came from uh, Georgia Tech. I've spent two two days with uh, Walt DeHeer, who's who really deserved the Nobel Prize for discovering graphene. But DeHeer has, uh, over 20 years, has fi- has developed a way to uh, create perfect layers, sheets of graphene for wafer-scale integrated uh, computation grown 
on uh, silicon carbide. So you, you sublimate out the silicon and the top layer of silicon carbide, and you get, gas out the silicon under high temperature, and you get a perfect layer of 2D graphene on the surface, which can be uh, manipulated and which uh, is the strongest. I've given you the uh, superlatives, but they're all real. I mean, this uh, while the silicon industry is reaching a sort of Baroque phase where they got fin fats and 3D structures on top of the devices and heat crises. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Tour and Dahir and other great figures are uh, moving back to 2D uh, graphene and uh, they're going to transform electronics. Wafer scale integration of electronics on silicon carbide is uh, a real practical agenda. And I think uh, the silicon carbide companies better get on the stick and uh, or they're going to, you know, the why China, the big, the one of the problems with the here at Georgia Tech, you can say it's a problem, but it's probably a solution to tell the truth. I mean, uh, the idea that we can gain anything by war with China is one of the most idiotic uh, ideas I know. And uh, the here students, half of them are Chinese. His, uh, his leading student has got a a big company now emerging to do uh, graphene on silicon carbide in Tianjin, China. And uh, meanwhile, the here can't get any money to, from uh, all the American VCs. And, and, and even companies like Intel are all preoccupied with the CHIP Act, which is a kind of waste money on the mature and obsolete phase of uh, the silicon industry. Well, uh, Huawei's got a graphene uh, transistor patent. I mean, this whole, I mean, somehow China is more capitalist now than we are. It's, uh, and, and it's, and this, is, this sounds like a preposterous idea, but, but really we're going over to China to tell them to adopt emergency socialism. Uh, that's what Newcomb, or whatever the name of the uh, goofball governor of... Uh, I, I promise in California. He went and told Xi that he wasn't communist enough, that he's got to really take over the economy and suppress his energy production. So, so George, you probably offended maybe 30, 40 percent of the people in the room because that billions of government waste will go directly into our housing prices here. So um, we feel very blessed with this. George, um, let's see. Well, Chandler, I, I mean, I, I, I'm for Intel, but I think Intel's got to do graphene and got to do the new generations of electronics rather than create a Baroque cathedral of the old era for the government. So I'm going to throw a shameless plug in here. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm on the board of Discovery Institute, which George helped found. Um, if, if you've enjoyed yourself, you can do this for like two or three days every year in November. Um, George, uh, he created Cosm, so I, I want to throw that out to the audience. I know some people here have been to that before. Um, outside of Cosm, George, uh, where else can people follow you going forward? In other words, if they look and say, gosh, George is a little screwy, but I love that. Well, uh, I mean, it's, if you can fight through the 
uh, somewhat embarrassing marketing. The future is surprising. Uh, not, uh, but uh, I do have four newsletters and uh, a great uh, Moonshots uh, publication, by, which is mostly written by John Schroeder or his mm. 20 semiconductor uh, patents, yeah. and who I met at Caltech with Carver Mead, who is the prime figure at Cosm. And we, I've got, I'm out there. Uh, Yep. Right. I'm I'm writing a new book on graphene now. And um, and by the way, Bill, he he's he's actually on Twitter or, or what we now know as X. So um, George George is I mean he's killing it. I'm not on Twitter much. I, not I'm not, not a, much. I've noticed that. Yeah, but, I'm, but I'm not. You're known, um, George. Thank you for your time. Uh, for our audience today and the listeners of this podcast, we believe book uh, George's book Life After Capitalism uh, describes true knowledge like Christ did. In the beginning was the Word. And that word can't be created or solved by government, (laughs) but by an oracle from the outside of the system. Um, Our audience today at the Smead Investor Oasis uh, has received a copy of George's book, uh, Life After Capitalism, should be on your seat. Um, Our listeners should go to their favorite bookstore or website, buy a copy uh, today of George's book. If you enjoyed this podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to a book with legs. Give us a review. Tell others about the books and great authors like George Gilder that we have the opportunity to understand and study the world with and through. Um, For our tribe, which we can look out to you today, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on X. Our handle is at smeadcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.